Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your hosts, mother and daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. These shows are brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation and are dedicated to Gloria and Heidi's son and brother, Scott, and to all those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. These shows are brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation, whose mission it is to help people find hope after loss. Well, Heidi, good morning. How are things in New York? Good morning, Mom. They're rainy and a little overcast. It's a typical kind of a spring day. This is this is what happens when we leave winter. It kind of gets it's dark for a while, and and we're waiting for spring. So it'll be here soon. Oh, good. Well, it's uh, rainy here too in San Francisco. You know, Heidi, um, I we you know the greatest has been released, and we interviewed Shauna Festi last week, and it's such a great show. Wasn't that fun interviewing her? It was, and I I loved watching the movie. And for those of you that have not seen the movie, I would really, really tell you to see it, and you will so identify with so much of it because it is. She really captured the experience of going through the grief journey and finding hope after you do lose someone you love. Absolutely. So see The Greatest with uh, uh, Pierce Brown and uh, Susan Sarandon and Carrie Mulligan. It's pretty amazing. And, of course, we have to be pretty flattered, Heidi, that she listened to our show every day while she wrote the wrote the uh, script, and I loved the fact that she said that she felt like we were her friends. She was in her apartment all by herself writing a script. She had no money. She was broke, and she listened to us every day. Wasn't that cool? I love that, and and I love that it was so important for her to get it right. She really felt like she owed the grieving world. You know, she wanted to get it right for them and to tell our story in the correct way, and she did. She really did. Yeah, and for our listeners, I want to remind you that, you know, our shows are on the, um, the grief, I mean, the opentohopes.com site, and, uh, you can listen to that show with Shauna Festi. And we have over, well, by the time we, we're working on our shows, we're cutting out all the commercials and making them shorter. And we'll have, what, 500 shows, Heidi? Yeah, around that. Absolutely. And we're, and we're grouping them all under child and death of a parent and death of a spouse. So we're going to make it really convenient for you. You're going to love our new site that's out in May. Well, Heidi, we have got a great guest today. And guess what? He's in the studio with me here at Outpost Studio uh, with Eleanor Tebow, who's our engineer. And we're at Outpost Studio in San Francisco. And sitting right across from me is Steve Harris. Hello. It's good to be here. Great. Great to have you on. Well, we're going to talk about the death of a wife is kind of what we titled it so that people will be able to find it. But it's about so much more. Uh, Steve is really quite an amazing person. So do you want to uh, just kind of introduce him for us, Heidi? I'd love to. Um, like you said, we're talking with Steve Harris, who is here there in the studio in San Francisco. And Steve lost his wife, Julie, to breast cancer in 2005. And a result of, as a result of this loss, he wrote and produced About Tomorrow, a nationally distributed audio product designed to assure and encourage people in the early days of loss. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, Heidi. It's great to have you here, Steve. And um, I love, I've got, I'm sitting here with About Tomorrow, and what a beautiful uh, CD you've made. And I want to talk to you about your experience, your journey, and about uh, making this CD, About Tomorrow. So tell me a little bit about your wife, Julie. Oh, the sweetest lady in the world. Um, she would just wake up every morning and greet the day with a smile and just was just full of joy. And uh, her attitude, her, her spirit, that's what I want to be when I grow up someday. <laughs> it's not likely at this point. 
but she was an amazing lady. Um, and uh, when she came down with breast cancer in 2004, we just kind of thought, you know, it'll be a trial, it'll be a difficulty, but we'll get through it right. because, you know, the really bad things happen to other families, right. not ours. Right. Our family just kind of sailed along, and we did, we did well. We didn't have a lot of the problems other people had. Well, Julie's and cancer. And you had two girls, right? I had two girls um, who were uh, 15 and 20 at the time Julie passed away. Um, her cancer was insidious. It just, it, it was like it was cunning, like it had an intelligence all of its own. It, it threw off everything we threw at it. And in fact, one of the uh, chemotherapies she went through, the doctor told us that that cancer has a way to figure out how to identify the chemo drug and push it out of the cell. Wow. So, so it can't be hurt. That's how it, it, really it's like it's got an intelligence yeah. of its own. And um, she would tell people along the way, I'm perfectly healthy except for the cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've never seen anyone die as well as and, she did. And it was very quick, right? She was only, I mean, aside from the effects of chemotherapy, she was only really sick for about a month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and how many months was it before when they discovered it until she did die? She, she was diagnosed in February of 04 and died in October of 05. Wow, very, very quick. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I'm impressed with uh, looking at your story and some of the things that you've done is uh, the fact that in some ways you were very prepared for it. And, <laughs> and, you know, weirdly enough, so was I when Scott died because I was the psychiatric nursing consultant to the surgical service and I'd actually worked with a lot of people in grief and loss and uh, I was all over the surgical service and, and I just worked with a family who lost a child in an automobile accident when Scott was killed. And wow, I thought I knew something. Yeah. And you know what? I knew nothing. It was yeah. it was quite a trip. But for you, let's get back to you. You were um, doing what when she got sick? Well, I own an audio video print production company. So we do creative services for a number of different businesses and organizations all around the country. So I'm used to helping other people communicate. And uh, one of my clients uh, owns a company called Comfort Music. And since the early 90s, they've been providing music on CD to funeral homes. These are the, the songs that are the, the music that's played in the background when you're in the funeral home and the songs that are used in the services that they conduct there. Um, and I helped him with promotion and advertising. And many years ago, he came to me and said, I'd like to produce something to, uh, to offer to people who've gone through a loss, kind of an aftercare product. And he brought into my studio a gentleman who was a grief counselor who did an hour-long presentation. I mean, and it was so boring, you could have surgery performed on you afterwards <laughs> because you'd be completely unconscious. And Fred knew that it wasn't working well, so we went back to the drawing board, and then he uh, brought in, this time a couple, husband-wife team, figuring they could at least talk to each other for the hour. And they had wonderful content. Everybody had wonderful content, but the presentation just lacked something. Um, the third guy he brought in, we're going to keep at this till we get it right, you know. Third guy he brought in uh, brought several of his clients with him, and they told some of their stories. And that was, that was interesting, but again, this guy wasn't really an accomplished moderator, mm -hmm. so the conversation kind of wandered a little bit. Well, Fred was a little frustrated, and I offered to take all the pieces from all these different things that we'd recorded, and I went back to the drawing board and wrote a narrative from scratch used some of the interview material that these people had given us, and we created the first version of, of this product. 
which was called Mending the Heartache. At the time, we knew we needed to go back and do it right. And uh, just a few years ago, we, we did. And we started on this project. And that was about the time Julie was going through her treatment. Wow. And then I remember in July of that year, we were just about ready to start the first of the actual person-to-person interviews with people who'd lost someone they love. And uh, that's when we went so in. So you were ready to do that. We were Here ready your to wife do is. Yeah. Yeah, it, we were ready to do oh that. Oh, my gosh. Did you have any idea how bad it was at that time no, when you were ready? No, again, this was something we were going to go through. She was going to have right. treatment and some surgery, and that would be horrible, but survivable. Right. And then and we went in. And here you were ready to interview yeah. three people. Oh and my that gosh. was the day our oncologist told us that we'd run out of options. Oh, my gosh. And we decided to discontinue her treatment. Oh. Uh, and I remember talking to Fred later that day and saying, Fred it looks like I'm going to be winding up being an interviewee in my own program. And he very graciously said, look, put this on the shelf, forget it. I'm not even going to mention it to you again. And when you're ready, talk to me. Right. Well, that was July. Julie passed away in October. And I went into the fog. Uh And I was lost. And I couldn't have a creative thought to save my life. Uh, Lost some clients along the way. Wondered if I'd ever be able to work again. Then around, uh, around January of that year, after the holidays were behind us and I started kind of to wake up, I realized I'd have to get back to work at some point in time. Right. I love that wake up because I think a lot of people out there yeah. right now are saying, wake up. Yeah, there's a point where I remember my husband saying that. He came home from, he had just started his business two weeks before Scott died. And mm-hmm. he came home from work and he said, but for him, it was almost a year. He turned it over to his partner, and he said, I just went to work, and we're going to lose our business. Yeah. He said, I just, it was like, mm-hmm. wake up one day, and uh, we're going to lose oh, wow. it. You know, so. Well, I decided to call Fred and actually start doing some of these interviews. And I thought, it's either going to be the biggest mistake I've ever made or the smartest thing I've ever done. And uh, thankfully, it turned out to be the second. Now, now what did you do? Did you, did you write them so that you could do it? You know, have, or could, no. you, could you really flow with it? I, I, That's kind of scary. Don't really, I don't really write down interview material in advance because usually the stories kind of come. If yeah. you just poke around, you know that from yeah. talking to people. Um, I, I knew that they had lost, you know, a spouse or a parent or someone, and and that got the conversation started. And then I just kind of followed the rabbit trails and see what they wanted to talk about. That sounds kind of scary, though. Weren't you afraid that I, you'd get to your own pain? Uh, well, it was scary, and I did get to my own pain, and I cried with a lot of these people. Yeah. Okay. And that was that turned out to be the best part see, of it. See, we're therapists, and we're, that's a no-no. <laughs> Well, I wasn't being a therapist. I was being, I know what I'm saying. I was being a journalist. What I'm saying is, lucky you. <laughs> right, Heidi? Is that a no-no? Well, I think it is if you're taking away the other person's painting. I mean, if you're like, it's all about you. But I think sharing grief and sharing tears is, is normal. Yeah. I mean, we're human. And I think it's showing people that, yes, I empathize with you. I get it. And I'm here with you to support you. I understand. I've been there. And what would happen is, you know, I would sit and listen and ask the questions as they're telling their story, and they see tears running down my eyes. And when the recorder goes off, they ask me why. Uh-huh. And that's, that's when I would I'd share with them what I had, had gone oh, okay. through. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we talked with people who had lost spouses, parents, children. One of them had a child murdered. Uh-huh. Uh, another uh, had a, her husband had gone in for a routine surgery and, and died on the table. Right. Um, d- just people with all kinds of circumstances from differing backgrounds, 
racially diverse, uh, and we were like a family. Uh-huh. And they shared some, some wonderful things. They shared with me the things that helped them. They shared with me the things that didn't help them. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, they were very honest about what they'd been through. And we captured that. I, I had every word they said transcribed. And we brought that back to the studio, and I wove it together with a narrative, added quite a bit of my own uh, comments, my own experiences. We had the entire program orchestrated. There's an original music score underneath it. We had two songs recorded for it that I picked specially because of the message of the songs. And uh, the result is a 66-minute CD. Absolutely. And I've got this right here, right? Yeah. About tomorrow. It's beautiful. Uh, I love the, just the picture you could hang on your wall of a beautiful uh, sunrise. It's gorgeous. Um, how do people get it and, and where did they find it while we're talking the about it? The best place to go is growingthroughgrief.com. And there they can hear samples of the program. They can uh, read more of the story behind how it was produced. Uh, check it out and order it online. Okay, so now tell us about what you've learned from your experience as well as hearing these other people? Your program isn't long enough. <laughs> Is there a particular area you're interested in? <laughs> what, what comes up for you when I say that? I, I think one of the most important things I learned is that, and this is especially for men, when I thought I was over it, I wasn't over it. Mm. When I thought I was better, I wasn't better. When I thought I had my judgment back and I was ready to make choices about where my life was going to go, I wasn't ready to make choices about where my life was going to go. And I think as men, we tend to be fixers. If I see something broken, I have tools in the garage for that very purpose. I'm going to go out and fix it. And, you know, the parts are available at Home Depot and the tools are in my garage. That's all I need to cope with life. And uh, uh, that didn't prove to be true. And here, somebody who had, you know, written about grief and interviewed people about grief, then found myself going through grief, uh, came out what I thought was the other end of it, still making some pretty serious poor choices, uh, things I should have done very differently. She was and is. Mm-hmm. I always think of these people still are great people. And uh, I was saying to you a little bit earlier, you know, 2005 isn't that far away, you know, uh, for the grief. Wasn't that long ago. Yeah, five years ago. That's, uh, we've been, what, 26, Hyde? Is that? Yeah. 26 years for us? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, five years feels like nothing in, in time. So I'm sure, I'm sure, Steve, you can speak to that more, but I'm sure at times it feels like it's a long time and probably at times it doesn't. That's what I would imagine anyway. Interesting that you say that. You nailed it on the head. There are times uh, I'll drive down the road and I'll hear a song on the radio. Smells are especially potent. When I smell a fragrance that reminds me of something Julie and I did together, uh, I have no immunity built up to that at all. There are certain songs on my iPod that will bring her back. Um, I kept a jar of her perfume. That that does things to me. Pictures will do it to me. Um, so, yeah, there are times when I can't believe she's gone, and other times it seems like a really, really long time. Yeah. I love that perfume, Heidi, don't you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Just the idea of having her scent, something that she wore that reminds you of her. And, and our, our sense of smell is so strong. 
Absolutely. Well, I want to talk a little bit about um, raising girls on your own because it's, uh, or raising kids, you know, how, you know, dealing with that by yourself, because I don't know how you and your wife were, but a lot of times the women are, you know, kind of carrying the emotional thing and then suddenly there the guy is, it's your job, dad. So how did that go? I generally had a really good relationship with my daughters. Julie and the girls had a special bond and they were very close. And she was, her, her saying was, you have to go through life with a sense of whimsy. Mm-hmm. And Julie had a sense of whimsy. And she celebrated everything with the girls. When it rained, they'd get you know rubber shoes on and go puddle stomping. I mean, the, they would do all kinds of wonderful things. And this was when my girls were teenagers. Um, and and she just faced life with so much joy, and she passed that on to the girls. And and uh, I felt that loss for them when Julie passed away. Uh, and I knew that it was a total waste of time for me to try to be her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't when she was alive. I certainly couldn't when she was dead. But there was a time for the first year when I was so caught up with my own loss and my own emotional whirlpool going on that I didn't really parent the girls effectively. Um, I mean, I made sure they were safe and they were home on time and their homework got done. And, you know, my older girl was in college and she was living in the dorms at that time, so we didn't see a lot of her. But my younger girl had to get her learner's permit and then her driver's license and, and all of those things. And the mechanics, I did fairly well. Um, Is that a guy thing of doing the uh, stuff? Yeah, activity, and uh, again, we, tr- we try to make things work. Mm-hmm. Um, emotionally, the thing I tried to do most was just be honest with them about what I was feeling and, or wasn't feeling and what I could do and what I couldn't do. And, um, you know, my younger girl and I tangled on some things, and Julie was always the buffer between us. When she and I would go at each other, Julie would, would mediate those exchanges and and settle everybody down. With Julie gone, Holly and I had to work out a relationship of our own, which is at the same time one of the hardest things we've ever done and one of the best things we've ever done. And today, she and I are closer than, to be honest, than we probably would have been if Julie had lived. Um, Because we had to. Right, right. You had to be the one to help her with her prom dress and see the boy out and all that kind of thing? Fortunately, there, you know, there were other women in our church and uh, among our friends who could do some of the practical girl things mm-hmm. with her, and they stepped in and, and were very helpful to me in, in terms of things that you really want another woman to help you with. Right. But in terms of day-to-day emotional support and just being a family, I, uh, I did the best I could, but it took me, it took me a year before I even could get the lay of the land and know what I had to do. And by that time, I'd let things drift. Discipline around the house was very difficult. Um, I, I just kind of let everything go. And it's, we were in survival mode. If we were right. surviving, we were doing fine. Right. But, but doing the things, the things that you want to teach a young adult before they go out on their own, certain, you know, the responsibility kinds of things and, and discipline and that, that just didn't happen for the longest time. It was very, very difficult getting it back yeah. uh, after the fact. Heidi, what comes up with you uh, thinking about that as a dad and a kid? Uh, so many things. I was, you know, I've been working with 9-11 families for eight years that have had mm. the loss of a father in the Trade Center. And I, I love how there were go-to people for your daughter 
women that could fill some of those roles because that's what we found, especially with the boys that lost fathers, and they all lost fathers. We needed to pair them up with other firefighter men because there were certain things that their mothers could do, but there were certain things that they really needed men to do. I also hear from a lot of the women that I work with that are now single parents, one of the hard things was sometimes they played bad cop, good cop as parents. And they no longer had that person to kind of not only play that role with, but also bounce ideas off of. So they would kind of come to me going, okay, Heidi, you know, I'm, I'm used to having my spouse to say, okay, am I parenting well? Am I being too hardcore? Am I being too lenient? And there was not that go-to person anymore in their lives. So I'm sure you saw that yourself. I mean, now, now it's on you. You're the, you're that, you're the everything for the kids. Yeah, and, and when Julie and I played good cop, bad cop, more often than not, I was the bad cop. So <laughs> heaven, heaven help my children who are now stuck with the bad cop full time. Right, and, and then she could balance you out. And then all of a sudden, as bad cop, you were probably, I don't know how that was all of a sudden. It sounds like you kind of had to say, okay, wait a minute. I need to embrace some of my wife's stuff also. I tried to do that. Um, and, and I'll say, thankfully, that over the past five years, I've, I've picked up a little bit of Julie's heart, which is her legacy, and that's a blessing to me. But, you know, it, when it comes to good cop, bad cop, I actually went to no cop. There, oh, there I was, like that. There was no sheriff in town for, for the first year. <laughs> the sheriff had checked out. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, and I think that you're, you're making a really good point, too, because when my brother died, I lost not only my brother, but I lost the parents I once knew because I was now living with grieving parents, and they were really doing the best that they could, and I knew that, but they weren't the same people that I had known. I mean, it took them a long time to be, I mean, they never, you know, they had to find a new normal again, but I was like, wow, I don't recognize these parents. These are kind of different parents because they're grieving. Yeah. So I, w- I want to um, move on a little bit to uh, another thing. It's been five years now. What about dating and remarriage? And I know people are, are really interested in what, what your thoughts are on that. I read a book which someone had given me. And, of course, when they knew Julie was dying and just after they passed, after she passed away, a number of people sent me resources they thought would be helpful to me. And bless their hearts, they meant well. Um, one of the people sent me a, um, a book on uh, uh, grieving men that talked about the fact that that I, I forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think it was something like 50% of men who'd lost a spouse were remarried within 18 months, mm. and that Surprising. and that of those who did, 75% were divorced mm-hmm. uh, in a short period of time. And I I looked at that. Julie and I had been married 28 years mm-hmm. at that time, uh, and we were married for life. We would have stayed together forever. Uh, so I, I thought that those statistics all, all applied to somebody else, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I, I wasn't included in that group. And then I found, remember how I said earlier, things I thought I was ready for, right. I found out later I wasn't ready for. That was the big one. Mm-hmm. That was the big one. Um, a year had gone by, and uh, actually one of my daughters came to me one day and, and said, you know, Dad, you really ought to start dating again. Mm. And I looked wow. at her like, excuse me? <laughs> And coming from her, that was kind of shocking. Uh, she said, no, you need to get on with your life and you need to find somebody, you need to have some company. And I thought about that for a while and eventually did that. And I met a very nice woman and I got married. And uh, uh, I learned very quickly that I wasn't ready for that. 
and that uh, I had made, uh, with all due respect to my wife, who I love, uh, a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of that, I paid a very dear price, and we've had a very stormy time. Mm -hmm. And we're getting through it by the grace of God, and through a lot of hard work, uh, a lot of putting up with things on both our parts. Uh, and we're going to squeak through. But had I been the intelligent, thoughtful, you know, uh, well-adjusted uh, well person I thought I was, <laughs> right. I would have put that on the shelf. I would have gotten a dog and a big screen TV and called it good. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, dating again, uh, raised up emotions in me that I hadn't felt since high, since high school. Mm -hmm. And I was content to leave them in high school, and I wasn't eager to feel them again. Right. Uh, it was it was a, a difficult thing. Um, in fact, during the dating experience, uh, I dated several women, and, and uh, I discovered that what I was was the wrong species. See, I thought I was a man, but I decided, I, I found out from them that what I actually was is this this creature called a man butt. A man butt? A man butt, yeah. Because they would always tell me, Steve, you're a wonderful man butt. <laughs> and, and that would be followed by some you know, explanation right. for why we weren't going to see each other again. Right, right. And uh, uh, I had felt those feelings since high school, and they were not especially good ones. Um, and, but I had you know, needs for approval, needs for companionship, right. needs for some semblance of getting my life back on track. And I ignored those signs, and I pressed ahead when I shouldn't have done that. Uh huh. So, so it can be early. It's hard, you know. We have a lot of people email us all the time, and they're they're like, um, "I'm dating somebody, I'm with somebody. They're having trouble dealing with the fact that I'm grieving." You know, you it, it, it's hard. You you are grieving, and you bring in a new person, and they feel supportive in a way. But after a while, it's like it's like a lot of friends out there are saying, you know, get on with it. You've, you've grieved it. You know, we're moving on to this relationship. I don't want to yeah. want to uh, deal I with that. Thought, I thought it would be really prudent if before I started dating, I did two things. First, I went and saw a counselor. And mm -hmm. I said, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And the counselor said, you're fine. Go for it. Uh, the second thing I did is I went to some very dear friends who are kind of like accountability partners in my life. And I ran the idea by them. And they said, yeah, we think you're in good shape. Go ahead. Later on, when I came back and I said, what were you thinking? Why in the <laughs> world did you tell me that? They would say, well, we saw a sparkle in your eye. And we right. saw that this was a hopeful sign for you. And we didn't want to pour cold water on that. Right. Everybody so wants us to be happy. They told me what, I, the, what they thought I wanted to hear. So men out there, I would tell you, if you are being encouraged, check it. There is going to come a time when it's time to move forward in that area. But uh, if you're still in the first several years, sit down with your friends who are telling you to go for it and look them in the eye and say, I would rather be single the rest of my life than get into a relationship where I don't belong. Okay. So some good advice for those guys out there. Now, moving on to one other place, um, I wanted to ask you about, um, I noticed that at one point in your life you were interested in the ministry. I studied for uh, pastoral ministry. My, uh, my bachelor's degree is in pastoral ministry. And I wound up working uh, with a number of ministry organizations doing broadcast-related products, oh. projects. And uh, that became my career. 
So what I wanted to ask you is how can grief change your faith or what happens to your faith? What's happened and what have you found? Because I know a lot of people uh, and men are asking us, you know, about questioning their faith. Well, I can't believe not questioning your faith at a time like that. Um, and I don't know how anyone survives grief without faith of some kind, because otherwise life seems pretty bleak. But I can tell you this, for me, faith is an anchor that I've had in my life since my teens. That anchor is rooted solidly, and that anchor isn't going to let go. But just because you're on a boat that's well anchored, that doesn't mean the waves aren't going to come and splash the boat around and wash over the deck and make everybody absolutely miserably seasick. And, and that was my experience. I, I, had, uh, incre- I, I never doubted God's presence, God's care in my life, God's plan for my life, the fact that I had a future uh, that was more than just the result of whatever I would choose for myself, that there was some, a plan in place. Uh, and yet, uh, it, it's like when the, we sent the spaceships up to the moon, the Apollo missions to the moon. You know, they f- would fly up and they'd go around the dark side of the moon and, and Houston would lose communication with them for a while. And there were some tense moments until the capsule came around the other side and they'd regain communication. They were, they were on a path the whole time. They were never lost. They just felt out of touch. That's where I was. So now is that, that faith giving you hope? Let's talk a little bit about hope as we end the show. <clears throat> What's brought you hope and wh- what would you suggest to the men out there? And women? The thing about hope is that it's something we can't see. It's something we have to believe in by faith and to, to know that it's out there. And I personally believe that there is a real God who genuinely cares about his children and loves us. And even though bad things happen to us and good people die, there is a plan in place and God's love is going to get us through that. Uh, it's going to be a difficult struggle. You're going to come out the other end stronger. You're going to come out the other end with a a different perspective on life. And the saying goes, life won't ever be the same, but it can be very, very good. Uh, Let's end on that note, Steve Harris. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's It's been great having you on. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. If you have found this show to be helpful, you may visit us at opentohope.com where you can become a part of our caring community by signing up for Facebook, Twitter, and the Open to Hope Foundation newsletter. Thanks for listening and tune in again next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time.